and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street, a monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Today, we are talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Our goal is to get through the first three, but as we watch them, we realize a lot is there to unpack and to talk about. So we'll see how far we get this episode. Yeah, we're excited. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, let's just do some general thoughts on the franchise uh, before we get into specifics about each film. Um, So for me, this franchise is one of the most successful horror franchises that there is. One of the most creative, innovative uh, film series. and it really does a fine line of walking, well, sometimes better than others, <laughs> but it does that really good fine line of walking between camp and horror. Don't you think so? Agreed. I I just, I also just love it because it elevated horror in a way that like we just didn't get a lot of in the 80s. Mm-hmm. A lot of the 80s horror movies I watched were straight up slashers with like half naked women falling out of showers to be stabbed. And Wes Craven and friends were like, how about we not do that? (laughs) How about we play with the genre? How about they wear comfortable sweaters and get chased in their nightmares and see how that feels? And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I will say just some interesting tidbits. Um, A Nightmare on Elm Street is the 21st highest grossing film franchise in the horror world. It made more money than Friday the 13th. Rightfully so. Um, And it also spawned a lot of, I didn't, I didn't really know all this. It spawned, I knew it spawned a television series. Yeah. Um, And I don't think I've ever seen it, but it did spawn, but it had books and comics. It was really a cultural phenomenon back in the 80s. So that's really interesting because you don't, see that much from horror you know yeah no like it very rarely breaks into the mainstream in a way that is so embraced by so many different forms of media um like very few i think possibly tales from the crypt and i can't even think of any other horror movies that's well scream of course that did have like a show on mtv yeah it had one good season (laughs) (laughs) the second season was okay i'll give it that the third thing, but it wasn't even a season, but we'll, we'll, we're digressing here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's definitely one of the biggest cultural horror phenomenon. Yeah, no, it's kind of like the horror movies of that time were Destiny's Child, the first reiteration, and Nightmare on Elm Street stepped out as the Beyonce. I am just ready to dig into all of the fun to be had. <laughs> with this we, have our, we have our drinks prepared. Yes. Red wine over here. Red. Oh, Sheree's got red wine. I've got vodka, lemonade, my usual go-to. I mean, it's summery. It's refreshing. I'm a Southern lady, you know? <laughs> I am. Anyway. <laughs> so let's start with the, the first one. Nine Nightmare on Elm Street. Awesome. Um, this one, <laughs> as soon as it comes on with the credits, even there's like heavy breathing, and I couldn't tell if we were in a trade school or if we were with Freddie because it was like a random task, like metalworking or woodworking. It was very weird. Um, I didn't know what to expect. 
my first thought is just Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. Uh, <laughs> as I said in the last episode, I am not the biggest Nancy fan. Um, I thought all the other characters were much more engaging and interesting than Nancy. Um, I think we'll get to this later, but I think she gets more interesting as the series goes along. But I just couldn't, I, I, I don't feel sorry for her. I don't, I don't know. I'm just not into it. I, I definitely feel like she, I don't want to say she was miscast in this one, but perhaps she was not ready for this role or she came into it with those preconceived notions people have of what horror is because yeah. her performance is definitely the weakest and what is not a strong crew. Like it's Johnny Depp's first movie. He was cast because Wes Craven got along with him when he auditioned with his daughter. <laughs> um, not because he was out here being Johnny Depp. Um, yeah. So like, I just, I feel like perhaps some of these babies just didn't understand what horror could be. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I am sure that Heather Langenkamp is a, a very sweet woman. Oh, yeah. But, girl, it, it's just rough. Um, she does a lot, according to Wikipedia. Um, she does many, many things. She does, like, makeup and stuff. And so I feel like perhaps she was also juggling multiple habits and hobbies. Makeup. Her makeup <laughs> looked good. Her makeup <laughs> looked good. That's all, you know? <laughs> I think, and something else that's really interesting throughout the series of the West really puts in his first film is this idea that these parents are just terrible parenting. <laughs> yes. God, yes. Like, oh, Nancy's mom, we all love vodka, but hot damn. Why when she pulls the gallon from under her blanket when Nancy's tucking her in towards the end of the movie, Don't. I castled. Don't. I had to pause and finish tackling before I could finish anything up. But like, if, okay, so the mother knows. So also, I should have said this up front. Spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't seen these movies, I don't know what to tell you. It's been alive longer than I have. So catch up. <laughs> the mother knows that she burned this dude alive or to death. Burnt, he died. Um, she knows his name. She knows that she's never told Nancy about him. But then suddenly Nancy starts talking about, like, why can't you believe that something is weird happening when, like, these things don't add up? I mean, I get that you're drunk, but even when I'm drunk, I know when, like, shit's weird. Yeah, I feel like Elm Street is a place where bad parents go to raise children <laughs> because it's examples spread out the entire franchise. Like, this is just Elm Street mom number one. <laughs> she, okay. she made choices. We'll get to her later, but the only, like, decent parent in this entire franchise is the mom in the sequel. <laughs> the dad's terrible, but the mom is all right. We'll talk about them. I have thoughts. <laughs> we'll get to them. Also, this has, I will say, probably, if not the, one of the top five most iconic death scenes in a horror movie, and that is Tina. I appreciated it because when she popped up, I was like, well, Tina's the first girl, so she can't be the final girl. It's like the first wives club, you know? Like, you're not going to end there. So I was excited to see her journey. <laughs> and it was a quick journey, but still. <laughs> no, I did prefer Tina to Nancy, though. 
didn't we all? Didn't we all? We made a we made a choice, and we can't go back because Freddie killed her. And let's um, talk about that part in this in the scene before she dies, when Johnny Depp is calling his mom to tell him he's staying with his uncle or whoever who lives by the airport, and they're playing the tapes. <laughs> it's just so eighties, and I love it. And then the the gunshot starts going off, and he's like, "Oh, my t- it's fine, mom. I'm good." <laughs> These parents. These parents. I, I like how they. <laughs> I like how they couldn't push stop because they kept trying to like find the stop button on this big ass boombox with big ass buttons, and it was like, <laughs> "We can't. Let's Google. The, let's giggle together because we can't find the stop button, which is as big as my face." And I was like, "This is. I don't understand." But while we're in this house party that kills Tina, ultimately. Let's talk about how Tina is, like, getting it in when she's murdered, as you do in a horror movie, because, God forbid, women have sex. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nancy's, like, clutching a crucifix, so we know that she's going to be the final girl. What? <laughs> what was that? Jesus saves. I also uh, want to note that, like, Tina's boyfriend watches her murder and then lives for at least another 25 minutes of the movie, even though he was also having sex. So, like... <laughs> Why don't we kill both? What are we saying? What are we saying? Is this and, sexism already? Well, loud and clear. But I will say at least her death is like iconic. Whereas his death, who cares? <laughs> it was such a throwaway. It was like Freddie was like, oh yeah, I have that one errand I haven't done. I guess I'll go do that today. Right. <laughs> um, I also have written down that the score is deliciously 80s. It is the best score of the entire franchise, this first film. So good. Um, also, a little nugget of knowledge here that I was like, so I was watching it and we got to the classroom scene and I was like, wait a second, is that? And I had to look it up. The teacher is Lynn Shane, the girl that, or the older lady that's in Insidious. She's the teacher. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. And she's also in a bunch of like queer, uh, queer films. She's great. Another iconic scene, which again, like you said earlier, the like demonizing women's sexuality, the bathtub scene, when the hand comes out mm. of her vagina, essentially, out from between her legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I remember that no matter what, because it's used so much. Like pop culture loves this bit. I've seen it in so many film classes. I've seen it in so many highlights. It's just like Nancy in the bathtub, legs a gap, Freddie's hand coming up the center. And it's just like, we we get it. But also, why do we need it everywhere? Did Nancy give us nothing else? <laughs> I mean, we've already discussed that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could go to Tina's death. I, I feel like Tina's death, still, I would rather see bits of that, especially because of the way it was done. And with what appears to be their budget. <laughs> and that was very creative and cool. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When they're, like, pulling her up on the ceiling and the and the, the wall. Yeah. That scene is everything to me. She was all over that whole room. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and even in the chase scene, when she's running from Freddy and, like, his arms extend, that's terrifying. <laughs> I... I was never afraid of that scene. I wanted those arms, though. But, like, I was like, why can't I have long arms? So I could, like, reach the top shelves of things when I was a kid. You wanted to be stretch arm trunk? I did, because I was independent. And I was tired of people having, like, reach things on the top shelf for me. Freddie's arms would have come in handy. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Let's see what else. 
this is when Johnny Depp was actually attractive. Um, Those are the days. That's going to make some people upset, but I'm sorry. I like men that bathe. I like men who bathe and are not actively in court for possible spousal abuse. Like, my bar is pretty low, but, like, (laughs) Johnny couldn't meet it. (laughs) He could have been, though. He could have been, though. He bathed, and he was not beating people. Right? He used to be goals when I was a kid. I had the biggest crush on Johnny Depp. Like, I, Edward Scissorhands, was eating a bird grape, all of it. I was here for it. And something happened in the 90s, later on, and we were how to take a bath. He just forgot. He became too rich to use soap. And that right there was a mistake. There is a line that I need to talk about. And it's from my girl, Nancy. As we said. It's toward, I think it's towards the middle it's when her it's like johnny depp is starting to kind of believe her and all this stuff she looks in the mirror and she says god i look 20 years old bitch (laughs) number one Heather Langham, you were probably 20 years old when you made that movie so like come on number two 20 i wish i looked like i was 20 (laughs) Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. <laughs> Nancy, 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 girl. <sighs> All of her line readings felt like she was just throwing away the script in this one. And I didn't understand. I was like, did you just not read it? Did you did you not like it? And you're like resisting this way? <laughs> I I was confused. Yeah. Well, uh also, there was some and, and this is kind of throughout the franchise, but really I've made note of it in this movie. The whole idea of the the fourth wall between dreams and reality and how they just took that and shredded it. It was it was like it was very interesting. I don't like it's it's it made me think, like especially in the scene where the guy the boyfriend who Tina's boyfriend is dying in the in the jail. Um how yeah she was kind of in reality but not in reality it was very very interesting i i love that and i feel like this movie is the one that uses that element the best because in the other ones it gets really murky and i'm not sure if they even know where they're at anymore um i also we because we seem to be like heading towards the end of this one we need to like definitely mention john saxon who was the dad um i i couldn't tell if nancy's parents were divorced that's the vibe i got (laughs) um so i have questions about what he's doing as a parent as well especially as his daughter is like sort of slowly losing her mind and he's all like just get some sleep dear." and i'm like clearly sleep is not the answer she just brought freddie's love out of her dream right these parents just think dreams are the answer or sleeping is the answer to everything it's not (laughs) not always (laughs) But yes, definitely rest in peace, John Saxon. That's very sad. I do want to shout out, we, you know, we've talked a lot of shit about Nancy's mom, but her hair and makeup, girl, that was some 80s fierceness. I felt like it was a fancy soap opera happening in the backdrop of Nightmare on Elm Street, and I wanted to watch the soap opera sometimes. It was giving me Dynasty. It was giving me everything. Just the higher the hair, the higher, closer to Jesus, you know? Right. right? She was like, why can't you just put on some lipstick like me, Nancy, and just, like, drink it away? Um, See, she had an active plan. <laughs> she was not just, like, sleeping. She was drinking. 
And when you drink and you sleep, you don't have no dreams. <laughs> right? Freddie can't get you if you're unconscious for different reasons. <laughs> oh, and what happened to that poor girl in that dream? Poor Nancy. What, ha- what did Freddie do to her that gave her that rogue stripe? I mean, she works it, but like, did he, did they go to a hair salon? Like, what, what did he do to her? I feel like there was a whole other part of the dream we didn't see and where she becomes an X-Men and she takes on the persona of Rogue and we just didn't have time for it. So they just cut it. Or Marvel wouldn't give them the rights yet. So they just cut it. <laughs> <laughs> it explains the strike and it explains who she thinks she is when she wakes up. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's when she's like, now I'm going to be a badass. Yeah. But also the ending of the movie, I... I don't know what's true from the ending and what's not true because of the way they use bits and pieces of it. Right. Because, like, we're like, clearly she's still in the dream, so she's still in danger. And her mother got snatched into the house. And then in the sequels, we are different versions <laughs> of what may or may not happen. Right. And I'm just like, can we just pick a path? Can we just pick a path? <laughs> Choose your path. <laughs> Choose your own ending so I can follow it. Um, let's take a moment and just remember. Johnny Depp in a crop top. It was a gift. It was. I was rooting for him. I was too. He he had not the most. He well, okay. Judd had the worst death. I think his death was like not even whatever. Like okay, but then. I get the whole, like, there's a lot of blood and it's going everywhere. It's like, also, how much blood did that boy have in his body? These are questions. Because whatever Freddie's doing to them, they have extra blood. They have the blood of nine people. And I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it's in the dream world, there's just more blood, or if Freddie's bringing it, or if, like, the Elm Street kids are just bloodier than the rest of us. I don't know. Um, Because, like, you remember, like, it's dripping from the ceiling. There's so much blood that it is like coming through the ceiling I do wish I wish we could have seen the dream because I don't think we saw the dream no where Johnny died we just saw the the reality the real world I kind of wonder if it's like a deleted scene on the DVD because I definitely watched everything on HBO Max but like I wonder if it's a deleted scene and perhaps it's in somebody's special box set or if it just was never filmed for whatever reason maybe they that just, i don't know i would like to know yeah maybe they just wanted it to be yeah. like ambiguous let's talk about the phone tongue for a minute <laughs> that was so creepy and i i want to hit on something too because you know the the remake of this film they really played into that he was not just a murderer, that he was a, a pedophile. Yeah. Um, and I think the original films, even, even, even the first one, really alludes to that, hints at that, but it doesn't blatantly say it, which for me, I think that's a better choice than to just like blatantly say he was a child, he was a pedophile, because that adds a whole other issue which i don't think the remake handles correctly no like once you pull that trigger for lack of a better term right now you have to deal with the trauma and the fallout of that 
it's part of the reason Kimmy Schmidt and I can't get along is because they didn't address the trauma early on enough. Um, if you put somebody through something like that, or you want to depict that story, you have to do the due diligence. You can't just be like, these are things that we don't talk about in society, throw it up there because it's a horrible thing. And that I feel is, especially because in this current franchise that we're watching, the original, we we have weird inklings of Freddy's sexuality. So I don't like the idea that we would lean towards that specifically um, if we're not gonna like give it care and attention and handle it properly because it just seems sloppy and a little homophobic that way. Yeah, and, and well, in, in the original, he seems he seems like he could be a pedophile, but he didn't. But what they blatantly do is just make him a creep. Yeah, yeah. Which I think again, it's just a stronger choice. Yeah, because we all know creeps, and so like that's relatable content, and right. you don't have to like elaborate on that. You're just like, oh yeah, got it, Freddy. We all know him. <laughs> I made the note that Nancy was the original Home Alone. She's making all them damn traps and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to the bullying of the world. How does she know that setting up these booby traps in her house will catch her Freddy? Because how does she know where Freddy and her will end up in her dreams? Good point. Yeah, it was a lot of luck on Nancy's side. True. That's ha- but like, let's be real. That's all final girls. It's just a bunch of luck. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Oh, and can we talk about a lot of the, fact, a little luck. the fact that when she went to sleep at the end to the, for that final dream sequence, she thinks she could get to Rem and and like get him and bring him out in 10 minutes. Girl, I wish I could do that. No, <laughs> it's not. No. <laughs> Even if she took all the sleeping pills, no. <laughs> you Nothing's guaranteed in 10 minutes. Right. And also parenting fail if your kid calls you and they're just like in 20 minutes come get me and you're like go watch my house i'm busy working your house is across the street you can't parent for five minutes like this murder yeah it's sad because it's joining up and it's crop top but kids have been dying all week surely you can leave this one scene for five minutes go check on your kid all right and also let's talk about for a second when she gets out of the dream and freddie's chasing around the house or whatever and she breaks literally two windows and there's smoke coming out of the house. And this officer's like, uh, well, I guess I should go get, yeah. Right? <laughs> adults, these adults are just, I can't. The sheriff's department concerns me. And I feel like <laughs> even if Freddie were a real person, had they not burned him alive, they would have never caught him as the sheriff's department. <laughs> So that's why parents are like handling vigilante justice because like, <laughs> the officers are asleep at the wheel. Apparently, I was just like, "What in the what in the world?" <laughs> um. So then she pulls him out, and poor mommy dearest gets burnt up. Sad to see it, but it's also the first time we see the bed gag, <laughs> which they will come back to a lot. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, and that was a really, well, it was a weird, I don't, I don't quite understand what they were trying to do there, because, like, she kind of, is she going back into the dream world and bringing Freddy with her? I don't know, I didn't really get that part, personally. And then, like, the moment when, 
yeah and then the moment when, like nancy turns around and like freddie starts to come up from the bed with the sheets and it, yeah i like i don't get it yeah because she was like i need to be alone and they leave her alone after all that has happened and she knows this is when her and freddie are going to have the final final confrontation as far as she's aware how can you be so sure with freddie that anything is final like it's freddie krueger do you really get to call the shots with freddie krueger do you i mean i will rarely say this but in nancy's defense this is her first run-in with freddie <laughs> she don't know him that's that's fair i will give her that yeah yeah and you she know did not know eight more sequels were coming <laughs> and you know me i'm not gonna you know give nancy much in defense but i will give her that so moving on to a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge um, first thing first yes this bright ass house this bright ass house like the weird wallpaper it is very very high reality i felt like i was on drugs I didn't understand the cereal box was also a choice. Like, their props department and their set dressing came into money with this one. And they were like, let's make it bright. They did. They spent more money on it. And it did not, it was, did not do as well as the first one. It, I mean, it, there were choices made in this one. The whole school bus scene, I felt that did not get any of this new money. <laughs> not, got none of this new money. They went big on the house. Um and the party and was like oh yeah we have to open and close this thing oh shit (laughs) (laughs) um so you know as many people who are listening probably already know um this film has been said to be very uh coded queer and i think that is very obvious um, yeah. I want to address some things. Number one, sadly, this film has the lowest rating of any of the of the films in the in the series, which I do not think is fair. Um, I do believe that the reason, for me anyway, the reason why it is not as good as some of the other ones, namely the original, and then I don't think it's as good as the third film but is that there is no connective tissue between what they're trying to do with this film. It's just very random. Um, And it makes no sense in their larger mythos of Freddy. That's what makes it bad to me. Not the fact that they are um, possibly playing around with queer themes. I think that if if anyone has not watched um, Scream Queen, my Nightmare on Elm Street, the um, documentary that the guy who played um, Jesse made, I highly recommend it. Mark Patton is the actor. The homophobia that that man experienced after this film was released is disgusting. He was getting death threats. He would, and people to this day, if you look at user reviews, are still using homophobic language. And I think that that's something that we really have to deal with it as a fan base in this horror world is homophobia and sexism and how deep and racism too and how deep that that penetrates the fan base because the fan base has for a long time at least the ones that go to the conventions and the ones that post the stuff have been very largely white straight cis men and 
he was never able to work again because of this film. And I think that that's really sad. Um, Cause he's not a bad actor. I think his performance is great. I think he's 30 billion times better than Nancy. And, <laughs> and he was never able to work again. And I think that's just, it's just a, a shame. Um, so he was really doing stuff. And then as soon as this film hit and all these friends, and they said that the re that he was blamed for why this film was uh, as popular or not as, as successful um, because he himself, he was a gay actor. And so then therefore he was blamed for the gay subtext. And I think when we get to that, when we get to these specific lines that were written by the guy that wrote the screenplay and the director that directed this film, and they both say, oh, I didn't know I was directing a gay film. Like, bro, it's just, ugh, drives me nuts. Literally, the goal of Freddie in this movie is to get inside Jesse. Like it is said so many times, so many ways. We kill their coach with balls. Um, the coach is fascinated with the young boys who are in his care, which is a problem. We did not know. I, I need a better excuse from them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and, and, the fact, and just the fact that he was blamed right. when it is absolutely not his performance that makes us, that A, makes the film queer-coded, and B, makes the film bad. His, that's not his performance. No. Um, we find out Jesse and his family have moved into this house, so not even an actual Elm Street kid, like, but is being tortured by Freddy. We also find out Freddy wants to get inside of him so he can be in the real world. Which he's, is he's, if he's in the real world, he's, he can be killed. Can't be killed in the dream world. We find out he is not a fighter once he is brought out to the real world, and he bites the girlfriend in the leg. Well, the girlfriend. Um, quotation marks um, because like she and him are fighting and it's a sad and funny fight and at one point he just gets frustrated and like throws shit off of her walls <laughs> and then like he bites her in the leg which I'm like Freddie you have a whole glove right. you couldn't there's nothing fiercer you could be doing right so alright let's get down to like specific moments in this, in this film um, number one so everyone to know out there that all gay people wake up screaming. We just always wake up going, Wah! yes. And in the first, like, what, maybe 20 minutes, here we are, where he's too distracted by looking at the pretty boys to play baseball. Like, and then we're wrestling around with our ass hanging out. And like, and the coach tells us to assume the position. I mean, come on, people. Come on punishment by making them do push-ups in the mud and mess each other and get all sweaty feels wrong it tells me a lot about this coach <laughs> and this movie as someone who spent their childhood watching this movie over and over and over <laughs> i i'm concerned about what my parents let fly and what they did not let fly because this is basically a porn it's basically a softcore pornography there, yes and we'll get to more about the the coach later because yeah he problematic so there's the moment when I think Jesse's in his dream or he's dreaming, but yeah, I think he is. And he walks around the house and he looks in the basement and he sees this creepy dude burning something in his basement. So what does he decide to do? Go check it out. Like, <laughs> white people. Right. Can we really? Uh, I put hashtag white people in my notes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hashtag white people. I so my favorite scene in this film is when he's unpacking his room and he's dancing around. I love that. Um, that's another that's another one of the scenes because it was totally me as a kid. Like that was me. I'm relating to that. And that's one of the scenes that when in his documentary in his documentary that Mark Patton talks about how people make fun of him for that scene. And I'm like, I thought it was really fun. If it was Nancy dancing around her room, no one would care. I appreciated the joy in that scene because how often do these future victims of Freddy get to experience joy, especially when you're in a movie which is definitely heavily queer-coded. But as a person who did props under Julie Ray Mullenkamp, I had issues with the prop collection used for that scene because I was like, what story is this telling? Jesse has this weird red, white, and blue baseball hat. Also, like, leopard sunglasses with no lenses and, like, the weird pole thing he's using. And I'm just like, who is this kid? I need more details. And I know we're still unpacking this room slowly because they just moved in and he has triple red boxes a lot. But these items don't make a person. <laughs> so I was, I could not, I could not let my props person not see that. But I did enjoy the scene. Yes. That makes sense. And shout out to Doc J, if you're listening. <laughs> she would never let that slide. She would be like, these choices need to be connected some way somehow. <laughs> and, that, and, it, yeah, and that does make sense. I guess, like, and some of them bother me more than others. The hat bothered me. Yes. The glasses, I didn't bother me so much because I, like, as a young gay boy, I would totally be, like, in love with those glasses because they're fun and silly and, like, kind of, like, 30 years before she got famous, but, like, totally Lady Gaga, you know? Like, uh, but, yeah, like, the hat didn't make sense. I like, but, I did, yeah, I'm with you. I love the joy. I think that's what I was responding to. Yeah, because I would also give Jesse the glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, I would give him the glasses, but not the hat. And not the weird pole thing. It's the, pop, oh, no. it's the popping thing. It's, well, it's yeah. one of those old toys that you would, like, have, and you, like, push the button, and it goes, boop, and a little ball comes out. <laughs> I let him have that, too. But he can't have the hat with those other two props. <laughs> I, think the, I think the hat is what's throwing you off. Maybe. Maybe we just took the hat off. I can let it go. And when he's uh, closing the drawer with his butt, I was like, that's totally something I would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to the coach. I have questions because they never blatantly say that the coach is a pedophile. But he does, he comes off very, like you mentioned earlier, the, the punishment of them doing push-ups so close to each other, getting hot and sweaty and then having to go shower, you know, like, comes off very predatory and then we get to the scene his death scene and so the idea is that freddie has taken or like possessed uh jesse so jesse's now snuck into this what, what do they call it a, a an snm bar or something like that and he sneaks in, yeah he sneaks into this and then meets his coach there and then the coach forces him to go back to the school. Like, in my mind, this is all happening in the real world. Or is it in the dream world? It just doesn't, because then later on you find out that they find his dead body in the shower. So he's not at home, asleep. You, know, you see what I'm saying? And the police bring him back home. The police bring Jesse back home and are, are like, does this belong to you? Right. It, it really plays with this whole, like, is this reality? Is it not reality? And it never answers that. 
but yeah, that scene just really confused me. And then, but and then in his death scene, you have the like you said earlier, the balls flying at him, which which seems very dream state to me and not reality. And then you've got like the whips and the you know, it all it it just yeah. It, did, did we notice that he never changed out of his harness and like he's just sitting there making this kid run laps? Yeah. Also, how do you get back onto campus with a minor after you've been at a bar? Like, where is the rest of this town? I'm concerned about all the adults now, not just the parents anymore. Right, exactly. And why is it in every, I feel like in almost every single Nightmare on Elm Street film, the first thing parents jump to, this is also true in real life, I guess, is what drugs are you doing? And I'm like, yeah. And, and like your son is waking up every morning screaming his head off because he's on drugs yeah like the whole parental unit because i know that the father is a lot but also the mom is just so passive and underdeveloped she's just like oh jesse's screaming again oh you can't keep yelling at him that way well maybe the bird did blow up because it was too hot in the house <laughs> I just I need her to have some agency and to use her nog and just a little bit more. That's a, a good, little bit more. That's a good point. But at least she seems to care more than that's more than. Yes, I give her that. Yeah, listen. When shit starts lighting on fire, like birds and stuff, you need to leave. It's time to move. That is your ultimate sign to get the hell out of the house. Like okay. literally, the bird just. <laughs> that's another. That's another hashtag. White people like. <laughs> right. You let me see a bird just catch fire in my house. <laughs> I'm done. I'm gone. Everybody can keep whatever's in the apartment. I no longer live here. Right. Okay. Now we're going back to a prop thing. Did you notice, because I laughed really hard, the name of his pills, his like caffeine pills, was S-T-A-U-P. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because like they couldn't afford a Y on the damn bottle. <laughs> Stop. Stop. I, I live for all the pill bottle labels in this franchise because you could tell people were just like, uh, no one's going to read this. Truly. And then our generation rolls in and we're just like, that does not fly. I've done pops before. Do better. <laughs> At least Hypnosil sounds interesting, which that comes in in the third film. But like, it sounds kind of like an actual medication. Stop. Stop. Yeah. Um. Stop. Another line that is just, if you didn't know you're writing a queer film, why the fuck is this line in this movie? Okay, it's dialogue between Jesse and the friend, his the guy mm-hmm. friend, when he comes back and just sneaks into his house. Into his oh, bed. God, yes. Yes. Okay, so this is the dialogue. Jesse says, something is trying to get in my body. The friend says... Yeah, and she is female and waiting at the cabana, and you want to sleep with me. <laughs> Come on, people. Come on. The whole sequence, starting in the cabana in that moment, it all was just a lot. Let's rewind to the cabana for a moment, shall we? Let's do so, it. So, like, Jesse's, I guess, girlfriend, for lack of a better term, um, goes to check on him because he doesn't want to be at the stand party that she's thrown for all these Elm Street kids and their friends. And so she seduces him because that's what you do when someone's in distress. You just seduce them. It's the 80s. Take your top off. Make everybody better. And so, like, <laughs> they are having this most uncomfortable 
it's not even an almost sex scene. It's just like really badly handled groping. And like Jesse puts a hand on each of her boobs and the shirt keeps moving, but I stopped tracking the shirt for my own sanity and sake. But like a hand on each. And at one point he's not doing anything because the Freddy tongue is back and he's distracted. So literally just resting hands on her boobs. Meanwhile, this poor girl is so starved for touch, she's still losing her mind underneath him. And I'm just like, who, who wrote this? Who directed this? A horror movie is a part of the reason people don't ever want to talk about female pleasure. <laughs> because you're not just like, I'm being touched. Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. It, there's so much more to it. You can't just, I, that is when I was officially lost in this movie and I stopped taking it. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped taking notes then. <laughs> well, and we also we also missed the moment earlier in the film when he when one of the few first few times Jesse meets Freddie, and Freddie legitimately caresses his face with his hand, Ooh. with his little like knife fingers, like very sexually. Right. He never touched Nancy that way. He never did. <laughs> never. Never. Did. He did lick her, though. Never. So different. <laughs> he was not going to caress her. I mean, it was a different mood, but this was a loving caress. <laughs> this was like, hi, I like you. He was literally... We should talk later. <laughs> he was literally, like, with Nancy, he was trying to creep her out. With mm -hmm. Jesse, he was seducing him. Um, Freddie's only goal this movie was to get inside Jesse. It is said multiple times <laughs> in multiple ways. And this caress did not take that <laughs> momentum away from that. And uh, even at the end of the documentary, uh, Scream Queen, um, he sits down, the guy who played Jesse, sits down with the director and they're kind of having their like ending, let's hash this out, let's you know deal with this. And the director still says he did not make a queer film. Denial. When I pour this next glass of wine, I don't know I'm making another drink. <laughs> That's what that is. Um, can we also, okay, I'm going to talk just briefly, because, you know, neither of us are, like, film people. I mean, whatever, we kind of are, because we're theater people. But, like, the, the, the scene, and this is going back to the, when they're in, he's stuck into the room with his friend. Um, the scene where Freddie's, like, coming out of his stomach is yeah. so gross. But well done. I so prefer practical effects over CGI for 75% yes. of all things. Yes, literally. I, I have issues when people get money and start getting lazy. Like, you've heard my rant about when Buffy moved to CW and started using plastic heads instead of prosthetics and makeup. You've heard those rants. And this podcast will hear them soon, too. But, like, <laughs> I... There's something to be said for an artist sitting down with almost nothing and having to get creative and giving us something that sticks with us. Because first off, something coming out of anyone's stomach has a reaction from me, which is why I couldn't get into Aliens as a kid. <laughs> I was like, Ugh, uh. um, I, <laughs> I just, I couldn't do it because of the whole like birthing element. It goes back to that phobia. I, I know, I'm working on it. But like, <laughs> seeing that happen in that room, <laughs> it was gross but it was so cool like you know part of me was like ooh, but I couldn't not watch it <laughs> and I felt so bad okay. one of the one of the things I that I believe really works for this film 
is the chemistry between Jesse, the friend, and the girlfriend because they were all really close. They were all friends, and they're still friends to this day. Um, and I think that's why, that's one of the strengths of the film. I feel like when you make a horror movie that isn't a popular franchise and it's so heavily queer-coded, you just sort of expect you're going to get a lot, especially because the loudest portion of the fan base for horror movies are the cis, hetero, straight white men who are very homophobic and sexist. <laughs> and so, like, I feel like on some level, you know, this will not be well received by them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, trauma bonds. Well, and and, I, and that's one of the reasons why I'm really glad in today's world that the the horror fan base is becoming much more diverse. You're seeing like a bunch of horror podcasts that have that are coming from different lenses, such as ours, but like you know, yeah. women of color and queer people and. Uh, all of the in between, um, and so I think I think that's really cool. Do you think? Do you think? And this is a legitimate question that like it's not that there hasn't always been a lot of us, but that we just didn't feel comfortable taking the space, and now we are. I or do you think that it really was a genre geared towards? Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, I think I think that you're correct. I think that there we were we've always I mean shit I've been alive since. 1989 watching horror from 1994 on and i loved it but like we're not always the loudest in the room so we tend to be overlooked mm -hmm. and i think that that's why we're not seen as the the majority of the fan base but i think that that's changing because we are finding our agency um specifically people of color women and, and queer people are finding their agency, finding our voices. And I think that the podcast medium is really helping that because we can create our own content. We don't have to rely on the straight white cis men that run the entertainment world. We can do our own thing and have our own voices and let them be heard, disagree or, or not, you know. Um, yeah, did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, it did. Because that's that's what I also believe is that just we were never taught to take up space, which is why we adopted these survivor stories and horror, even though they were definitely written through like the male gaze almost constantly. Um, <laughs> while Nightmare on Elm Street isn't as like open about just like busty topless girls falling out of things, there are still a couple we're gonna get into um, as this franchise goes. Uh, but also, I just. I feel like we're finding our seats at this table and we're building tables on our own now. And so that also helps us out because we're no longer waiting for Mr. So-and-so to let us be in the room. Yeah. And I think that, I think that you're correct. I think instead of finding our seat at the table, we're making our seat at the table. We're saying, listen, we have things to say. We have opinions that we need to be heard. And there's a bunch of people that agree with us or at least that share our perspective. Oh, I was gonna say, uh, it's part of the reason why I am living to see this new Candyman. I am living to see a black woman director take over that franchise and reboot it and give it the care and attention it needs. Um, it's the reason I am, I will watch The Babadook every year, a couple times a year, because it just, it's more sophisticated and it's elevated because it's not being told through the same lens. All horror has to be told through with the same narrative 
we're always constantly forced to take in when we consume media. And that's why some of my favorite horror has been made by a more diverse eclectic people. Like, I think that's why as a young kid, I really resonated with Scream and how that, um, mm -hmm. because it's written by a queer man, it's written by a gay man. And I could see myself in all those characters, even though none of them are gay, because it's written from his voice. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, it's the reason so many of us go back to child play so often, is because, like, it's it's written as not through the gaze we always have to take it through, and I feel like we can sense that, even if we don't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. Because I definitely did not know that Kevin Williamson was gay when I sat down for Scream, the first one or the second one. I don't think I found out until, like, I was, like, heavily into Dawson's Creek for Joshua Jackson. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I like his work. It adds up. All right, so let's take it back to Night Nightmare 2. I just have a few, a few more notes, but like, there's, there's so many shots in this movie that are iconic Freddy shots. Like yeah. the scene where he's pulling back the membrane on his brain, that, that they show that in every montage when you're talking about a nightmare on the street. Yes. And can we, so one of my issues with this movie, and I think that I'm really glad that Robert England has come out recently and said that he supports a reboot of this movie and one that really falls into or leans into the queer coding and queer messaging um, because the end of this movie is so, oh, the, you know, the straight love will save you from the big bad queerness. Like it's, it's, it's just so annoying. Yeah. And like there's there's other times and I don't know I'm not, I'm not, I don't even mean it that it's annoying because Freddie has been coded as queer. I mean that it's annoying in the fact that the savior is his relationship with this girl. Yeah, especially because they did not have chemistry. Those two actors. I mean, granted they're probably great friends, but like their chemistry did not work. It wasn't a romantic chemistry. I never got that they were together. I got they were best friends. And they had great chemistry in that aspect, the fact that they were friends and she was there for him when no one else would be. I never got that they were really romantic in any way. I kind of wonder if there was a version or if maybe we should write a version where instead of it being a romantic situation, it's more of a Willow Xander situation. And perhaps she talks him down from becoming this monster that's inhabiting his body as opposed to, I'm going to save you with a kiss because like, heteronormativity and so right. like I think we don't we don't need it we it did not it felt disingenuous and so it made the movie fall flat because you did all this like random shit you had freddie take over a whole party he took over a whole teen block party and i still want to know how they like explain that to their parents and the rest of the city <laughs> and then for us to like end up with a big battle being something that's solved with a kiss by someone you don't really have chemistry for yeah it just it it, it because there are other films where queerness is coded into the villain. Uh, like I've said in the last episode, a lot of vampire films, the queerness is coded onto the vampires, but it's still more celebratory. Even yeah. though they're the villain, they're fun. And, yeah. and they're not killed by a, a kiss between a boy and a girl, like, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, like Jesse's whole struggle made me very, very sad and uncomfortable to watch because I'm just like clearly, he is dealing with the sexuality, even though these writers don't want to say that. 
<laughs> um, but they are saying that. And so for us to make it seem like it's a suffering situation feels very, very wrong and very, very much like when hetero people write these gay stories with their own agendas. Um, especially like the religious people who are, oh my God, Stephanie Meyer, that's her name from Twilight, right? Mm-hmm. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, like she writes these characters in a way where you can sort of tell what it should be and could be, but also her own biases are like all over it. And so it makes it weird and uncomfortable to read and watch. I agree. Yeah, Alan, yeah, the last scene was just such a letdown. I would have rather we not had an ending than have that ending. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was. Such a- <laughs> I would have rather we just ended at the party. There is some positive things about the movie. And I do love that, there, like I said earlier, I do love that there is that joyous scene with Jesse dancing in his room, unpacking his boxes. Like, I, I love that there is that in this as well. Because to me, that celebratory moment was refreshing because the rest of the film is like don't be this don't be this don't be this don't be this and in that one scene you can see jesse just be free and i loved it yeah no it was it was one of the highlights because i i probably watched this one the most as a kid and i i think thinking back now i watched it the most because i knew something sexual was happening even if i didn't know what it was and i was homeschooled so of course that's the one i'm gonna go to repeatedly to try and like figure it out um and so i i that moment always sits out to me it's one of the ones where i'm kind of i'm not as livid as i am at some of the other stuff they throw at this character who they claim they didn't know they were writing this way and in these situations yeah yeah, because I want to make it clear that my problem with this film is obviously not that it's coded queer or that there is queerness in it. That's not my problem at all. It's how they handle the queerness that's my problem and how that there's no connective energy between yes. this movie and the rest of the franchise. Yes. Yes. It's very much, uh, you can tell other people were at the helm and Wes Craven was not in more places. You could. It, it was very easy to tell that from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Also, speaking of Wes Craven, <laughs> we are definitely past an hour already. So perhaps this needs to be a two-part situation. Should we make it a two-part situation, Trey? Yeah, I'm thinking we're looking at a two a two show week cliffhanger. You don't know what our thoughts are in the third movie. And let's go ahead and add the fourth movie for for good measure, a good round even number. All right, Sheree, let's talk about our hot takes from A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2. Um, my hot take is that you can have, you can utilize um, a queer coded character or even a queer character as the villain. There's a way to celebrate queerness in a villain while it's still being a villain. So yeah, I think that, that, that uh, Nightmare 2 fall short of that, in my view. That's my hot take. Um, but yeah, Sheree? I would say that because of the way women are usually handled in this genre, especially the final girls, I like seeing a final boy, especially if we actually embrace the queerness of that character. I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. And I salute that. 
which is where I feel that two failed is they didn't embrace it. Instead, he was constantly fighting it and we were hiding it, but also putting it in our faces, but hiding it. And so I feel like I want more of the genre to let us have a final boy who embraces his personality and sexuality. I, I would like that for any character, actually, not even just a final boy, like a final person, because we have our non-binary friends out there who are not seen whatsoever. More final people who live full lives. Thank you. You follow us on the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and rate and review us on Apple, iTunes. Um, again, that just helps people find our podcast, and we're greatly appreciated. You can also subscribe. Apple, uh, Spotify, all those things that we're on. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening to this uh, part one of our Nightmare on Elm Street thoughts. Sheree, do you want to close us out? Yes. Um, we will see you for part two of this <laughs> surprise part two situation. Way to have a two-parter. Pew, pew, pew. We find real sound designers later in life. Um, <laughs> um, so we will see you for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and Nightmare 4, Dream Master, probably later this week if you're following us. Um, yeah. All right. Have a great so, week, everybody. Yes, yeah, thanks Stay for fierce. everyone. Stay fierce. Stay scary. <laughs> <laughs>